I wonder uh, what your neighbors, the people around you, I wonder what they think of the church, not the building, the church, but the people, the church, the way the church is perceived. A lot of people, it seems, have the perception that the church is made up of nice people. And by nice, I don't really mean that necessarily positively, you know, just nice, sort of vanilla, maybe boring, uh, probably fairly kind of conservative and traditional and ethical and moral and upstanding and all that good stuff, but essentially just nice. And really, if you push them, maybe they would say, yeah, the church is full of nice people who aren't very nice to each other. We notice that we've got this reputation for being so divided and for uh, constantly fighting and arguing over all sorts of different issues. And there's some uh, reason for people to think that way. But I, I hope that in this series that we're just starting today, that we will not finish the series agreeing with that perception. Yep, the church is definitely nice people who are not very nice to each other. That would be a complete failure as far as the series is concerned. I hope what we see is that the way the church is presented in the Bible, the way that uh, the particular chapter that we're going to look at uh, portrays and presents what we have right here as a group of God's people is actually far better than even we have imagined it to be. That this really is an incredible privilege to be part of this. Not just the meeting, but really the, the body of Christ. We're going to look in the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, wave your hand in the air and somebody kind will find you one. Um, I think we're on page 977 in one of the church Bibles. Uh, 977, so Ephesians chapter 4. And the series title, very simply, is one word. It's walk. W-A-L-K, walk. And the reason we've called it that is because when Paul gets to Ephesians 4, that seems to be the word that just triggers his thinking. In the first three chapters, uh, I know Andy spoke a couple of weeks ago from chapter 3, talking about the church and how it is this display of God's amazing wisdom to the universe, the cosmos. But we haven't gone through the first three chapters. So let me just kind of give you a sense. The first three chapters, Paul presents the incredible, overwhelmingly amazing calling that we have. We're called by God to become a body, a gathering, a group of, of people who are united together in Christ. He talks in the first chapter about how the Father and the Son and the Spirit have all participated in bringing us to salvation. And that the same Spirit and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is toward us as we trust him. And that power raises us from our spiritual death and seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians 2. And though we were far off and distant and alienated and separated from God's people, he's made it possible for us to be brought near and to become one people, end of chapter 2, so that in chapter 3, Paul is just blown away, thinking about his privilege of proclaiming that message to Jews and to Gentiles, people who, to all intents and purposes, are absolutely separate. God has brought together in one body, equal together in the body of Christ. And so he finishes the first three chapters saying, wow, God is able to do so much more than we could ever begin to ask or even imagine. He is, wow, God is amazing. That's our calling. And I suppose you could look at that and you could say, just as Christ is now seated in heaven, mission accomplished, his whole work has been done. He's gone to the cross. He's died. He's uh, raised back to life, conquering death. He is now seated in heaven. We're seated with him. 
That's amazing. Like he, he's done the job and we get to jump in at the point where the job is done. It's not that Jesus has done everything that he needed to do and now it's time for us to do what we need to do to kind of, you know, catch up. No, in Ephesians, it's very clear. Jesus has done everything, therefore we're seated with him. Mission accomplished. If, if we've trusted Christ to be our savior, we're there. We're saved. We're secure. There's nothing more to earn. There's nothing more to, to kind of take care of to finish the job so that when, you know, eternity comes and we step into it, uh, God can weigh up the uh, evidence and say, yeah, actually, yeah, you, you did try hard enough. Well done. I'll let you in. It's not that at all. It's job done. There's no do left for us in order for us to get the job done. Our salvation is complete in Christ. And so that's our privilege, our position. We're seated in Christ. We are in Christ. 39 times in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, in Christ, in him. That's the big theme of Ephesians. In fact, it's the big theme of Paul's letters. We're in him. We're united together in him. Then we come to chapter 4. And chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, in light of every truth that has been presented, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Just think about walking. Walking is something that that we do every day as we get uh, into the kind of post four years of age. Uh, For a season, we don't think about it. As we get older, we start to think about it again. But walking is this thing that we just do, but it's this active participation in life. It's got a sense of movement and progress and activity. It's not a passive kind of sit around and do nothing kind of a word, is it? Walk means you're going somewhere. And so from chapter four, verse one, Paul urges the Ephesians to walk, walk in a manner worthy. In light of all that Jesus has done, live it out. And you're going to see if you read on through uh, Ephesians that he uses it in chapter 4 verse 1, he uses it again, verse 17, 5 verse 2, 5 verse 8, 5 verse 15. He uses it to introduce every new thought as he progresses. We're sat with Christ, therefore walk. And so we're going to be thinking through chapter 4 over the next three weeks about the walk that we have together, kind of the active outworking of all that Christ has given to us. And so we're going to be reading a section that's just full of of encouragement, full of instruction, full of expectation. There's no sense that we're going to be putting our feet up and saying, there's nothing for me to engage with. I might as well just fall asleep. No, we're going to see in Ephesians 4, and then if we carried on, we'd see it in 5 and 6. There's a whole load of implications for all of life. But remember, it's not that we're trying to earn anything because it's already been paid for. It's how we're living in response to what Jesus has done for us. And so this first section that we're going to look at today, from chapter 4, verse 1 through to verse 16, is going to speak about our walking together, walking in unity. And it's going to focus us in on that. And what we're going to see, I'll read it to you in just a second, what we're going to see as kind of the the main thought here is that we walk together in order to grow together. Let's read the passage, and hopefully you'll see what I mean, and if not, I've got a few minutes to prove it. All right, from chapter 4, verse 1, I'll read straight through. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we walk together in order to grow together. Walk together. Notice what he says right at the start, and really it takes till verse 3 to get to it, but he says this is what he's urging them in terms of walking in a manner worthy. He says, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This, this togetherness that has been created by the gospel, he, he wants them to be eager to lean into that, that unity Now, some of us have been in this church from the beginning, some of us uh, for quite a while. Uh, I have to say, we're blessed. We are massively blessed with the unity that we have here. I've been in churches and I've known lots of churches where what we have here would feel like heaven compared to the experience they have. The, The tensions, the difficulties, the backbiting and the gossip. We're really blessed. But Paul says... Be eager to maintain it. Don't take it for granted. Don't think that that's just going to carry on, you know, you just happen to fall into a united church. No, it's it's a blessing that is created not by us, it's created by the Spirit of God. And he wants them eager to maintain it. If you let your eyes drop down, uh, verse 13, he mentions until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So there's a, there's a unity that is ours because Christ has saved us and brought us together. That's the maintain that. But then later on he says there's something to attain, something to move towards. So there's a, a sense in which there may be an initial unity and a mature unity. In fact, we, we're going to think about what this passage tells us as far as the unity is concerned. But there's a goal for unity, I think sometimes we we can hear, or I can hear, speaking about unity in the church and just think, yeah, that's that's just nice, isn't it? 
it can just sound like a nice thing that, that if we're Christians, we should probably get on with one another. That would be nice. <clears throat> but actually, there's a purpose to it. And so we walk together in order to grow together. But, but I didn't put this word in at the start. Let me just put it in now. Hopefully it doesn't offend us. <clears throat> we walk together in order to grow up together. Now, if someone says to you, oi, grow up, it, you know, it usually doesn't go well, does it? That's the start of an awkward conversation. But essentially, it, with lots of love, that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. He's saying, oi, grow up. That's the purpose of the church. That's part of the reason that we exist, is to grow up together. That seems a little bit weird, doesn't it? Grow up. We're adults. The kids have left. Actually, when you come to Trinity, um, some of us are so used to it, we may not spot it anymore. But have you ever noticed there's quite a few children in this church? You may have tripped over three or four already today. Uh, we're so blessed, aren't we, with children, especially just this bunch of little ones that, you know, are, I often look at them and think, what a youth group that's going to be. You know, whatever's going on in youth group now is just a warm-up. Let's be praying for the youth leaders in 10 years' time. It's exciting, isn't it, to think about these people, these little people growing up into big people together. But actually, what we see with the little ones, God sees with us. When we're born into the family of God, we're born literally as spiritual babies. And so in 1 Peter, for example, it talks about being born again. It talks about this new birth in chapter 1. So in chapter 2, it says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. That's, that's where we start. And there's ways in which all of us still have lingering immaturity. Now, if you've been a, a Christian for, you know, a year or two or three, don't be offended, but there's plenty of space there to be immature. You've barely started. But even those of us that have been Christians for decades, there are still areas of our lives where actually there may be immaturity. Just like with humans, you know how it is. You look at a three-year-old and you think, you know, you hope in 20 years' time they'll be mature. But sometimes you meet someone who's 23 or 33 or even 43 and you think, hmm, not very mature there. And just, uh, just as with humans, so it is with us spiritually, it's possible to have years on the clock but to not really be very mature spiritually. And so Paul's saying in Ephesians, not a kind of, you know, a telling off, he's, he's, he's urging them, encouraging them that this is what the church is for. It's a community where as we walk together, we can grow up together. We can move towards maturity. That's a beautiful thought. In verse 14, he kind of describes the immaturity that we're leaving behind. He says, um, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I suppose there's maybe three characteristics of immaturity, true of children and true of spiritual children for you know, those of us uh, who are not yet super mature in the faith. Three characteristics. One thing you'll notice with the, the tiny ones is that they're a little bit unsteady. You know, they're the ones you've really got to watch out for. If you're going to trip over someone, trip over someone that's steady, because at least they'll survive it, right? But the, the little ones are really unsteady on their feet. And this toss to and fro is kind of speaking of a, a spiritual unsteadiness. 
Think of a, a little yacht or a rowing boat in a storm just getting thrown all over the place. It's not in control of itself. It's just, whoa, kind of a scary idea. Like uh, it's just whirling around and getting bounced here and there. And when we're spiritually immature, we're fully born, we're fully alive. If we've trusted Christ, salvation is ours. We have everything that we'll ever, uh, ever have in him. It's already true, but our lives will be characterized by an unsteadiness of going from this to that and not really sticking with anything, not really following through on commitments, not having that kind of uh, sense of anchoring that a more mature person has. Have you noticed, maybe you even remember, I remember as a child, that feeling of I can't even explain this, but I'm about to cry. Do you remember that feeling? It's like you're, the, the electrical circuits in your brain don't quite connect yet. And so just something can trigger and you go, oh, no, I'm going to cry. This is embarrassing. Or you don't even think that, do you, when you're really young? There's no embarrassment. You just wail. And we've got a, you know, we've had six who've wailed in their time. I'm not going to highlight any of them. But, but it happens, right? It's just this kind of the slightest trigger and it's the extreme agony and, you know, wailing and then a bit of sugar and all happiness. That's not really our approach. But, but there's this to and fro-ness to a, a young person that if you see the wailing in a 45-year-old, you think, oh, that's, that's more serious. You know, there's that... Lack of steadiness when we're spiritually immature. There's a lack of discernment, isn't there? It says here, tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of doctrine. Every new idea, every book, every conference, everything that comes along. The, the person who's immature will just be excited about this, then excited about that, then excited about this, and now they believe that, now they think that. And there's kind of a, a lack of discernment, a lack of ability to process and think and say, hang on a second, biblically, this is the way forward. It's the same with children. You don't have a child sat in the uh, high chair next to the table and put nice food in front of them and say, you know, that's good food. You've got your you know, good, healthy, balanced diet there. I'm just going to leave this bottle of bleach open within reach. But don't drink that because it's really bad for you. you. You don't do that with a three-year-old, do you? Or a two-year-old. You, you put the bleach out of reach because they don't have the discernment to process the fact that that is really harmful while this is super healthy. A spiritually immature person will see something that purports to be Christian and just get swept up in it. And then something else, and then something else. And then when they look back, they'll see actually there hasn't been much growth. Nothing has really taken root. There hasn't been much lasting fruit. It's just been hype. As we mature, there's a steadiness, but there's also a discernment. As we become more uh, Bible-gripped in our thinking, we become more biblical in our living. And I suppose the third kind of characteristic of immaturity is only subtly hinted at in the text, but it screams you in the face every time you, you know, you're parenting a little one, and that is that humans in their immature state are completely self-absorbed. You deal with a, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, you are dealing with one of the most selfish creatures you'll ever meet. It's the way we're wired, isn't it? I want food. I'm unhappy. I want this. I don't want that. She had, so can I? You know, there's always the back-to-self kind of orientation. And it's true with spiritually immature people too. 
that person offended me, that person upset me, that person didn't thank me, that person... And it's always kind of me-focused. Every conversation, every issue, uh, there's offense, there's an unwillingness to apologize or to make things right. There's a, just a sort of a, a sense of entitlement that I'm the center of the universe and why isn't everybody just bowing down to serve me? It's natural, it's normal, but it's immature. And as we mature... We become more steady, we become more discerning, and we become more self-giving. And Paul's saying, that's what the church is for. As we're in community together, we can grow together towards the mature version of what we're supposed to be. So, what goes into that? I'm just going to point out three things from this passage and, uh, and, and just kind of scratch the surface. We haven't got time to, to look at every little detail. But the first thing I want us to notice is in verses 4 through 6, 4, 5, and 6, where it goes through this list of ones. You may have noticed when I was reading it, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, you know, just seven ones. Did you notice that there's um, three verses, three persons of the Trinity here? We've got the Spirit in verse 4. We've got the Lord, that is Jesus, in verse 5. We've got God and Father in verse 6. We've got the Trinity in this set of ones. And what Paul is saying here is, is look, the, the life of the Trinity is at work in us. Okay, so who, who, is, who is we? That's great English, isn't it? Who are we? Who, what is the church? The church is a community of people with the life of God at work within them. It's not just that we're nice. Sometimes we're not even nice, but it's not just that we're nice. That's such a, you know, you can go to bowls clubs and knitting circles and you can find nice people in lots of places. It's not restricted to the church. No, that's, that's looking on the wrong scale. What we are here that is miraculous and unique is we are people who have the life of God within us. No one else has that. No one outside of Christ has the life of God within them. It's not just that we're nice, it's that we're on the inside new. It's not just that we, we have a certain kind of style of life or way of living, it's that we have the presence of life in a way that is not possible outside of Christ. There's something substantially different about us. And so the way Paul describes that in verse 4 is to say, you know, there's one spirit, one body, first of all, one body, the body of Christ, with one spirit within the body of Christ. So we're called to one hope. Then he moves on to the Son, and he says, just as there is, uh, or and there's one Lord, one faith, it's the faith in him, one baptism, there's only one way to kind of enter into the one body with the one spirit, with the one hope, because of the one Lord, and that's the one faith, which then you follow up with one baptism. It's all united, it's no different ways in, there's no different options, there's no plan B's or plan C's, there's one way, and it's all through Christ, so that the spirit is in us, and then there is one father, and he's the one that gets all the glory for initiating it, and for giving it, and just planning it, the whole thing is about the Father. And so the Father's plan worked out through the Son and the Spirit, that's us. And so the life of God within the Christian is an absolutely wonderful and miraculous reality. And that's where we start. We don't start just with a sense of, I'm a, I'm a rubbish failure. Well, I better try harder to be united. 
Now, actually, I am a rubbish failure. But in Christ, and because I'm in Christ, the Spirit of God is in me and he's in you. There's something already special before we even start to think about maintaining or attaining. Do you see what I mean? It's the life of God that is the foundation for the unity that we have. Then, from verses 7 to 12... Paul says that doesn't mean that we're all cookie cutters. We're not uniform. We're not all literally the same creatures. He says, no, no, there's a diversity. Because by the grace of God, not only has he given us all one salvation, he's given us each individually a part to play. This idea of the body of Christ is a a brilliant analogy because the more we learn about the human body, the more the analogy seems to work. Paul uses it in other places. He hints at it here. The idea that we are one body, the the body is not a collection of separate entities like a bag of pool balls or a bag of marbles just kind of bouncing off each other. The body is this incredibly integrated system of systems. And every time I think I understand something about the human body, I read something or see something else and go, I never knew that. That's incredible, the the intricacy of what's going on within us. A hundred years ago, I looked this up, the Nobel Prize for uh, Physiology and Medicine, the kind of the medical Nobel Prize, was going for things like discovery of blood types, uh, discovery of vitamin C, um, immunity type issues, how to deal with different degree... uh, diseases, not degrees, uh, typhus and things like that. It's things that we're thankful for. Antibiotics, that came a little bit later. It, you know, that's great. Then you come forward 100 years. 2016, that's three years ago, the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine went to a Japanese scientist called um, Osuni, I think was his last name. And he discovered how, the mechanism how, the cells within our body are able to recycle bits that are broken. What? How cool is that? He didn't invent it. It was there by design, right? God made us these amazing creatures. And even in a fallen, dying state, we have these mechanisms within the cell so that when something isn't quite working the way it should, the body is able to then take that and recycle that and use that energy. for. It's like it feeds itself off itself in order to fix itself. How cool is that design? I want one of those cars if they ever you know, come up with a car that implements the same issue. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? But God designed us that way. And so you know, I, I get excited about these kind of uh, little scientific things as proper brains are discovering them. I just try and get my head around them. But actually, the most exciting thing is what's going on here, where the body of Christ is brought together and God in his perfect wisdom gives gifts to individuals and says, I want you to play this part and I want you to play this part so that working together, the whole can be what it's intended to be. So... What he describes here is specifically five gifts that are people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, teachers. Maybe shepherd teachers, maybe shepherds and teachers. Doesn't matter. And you think, well, I'm not an apostle. Prophet, no, I'm not a prophet. Evangelist, not very good at that. Shepherd, teacher, not so much. Oh, I'm not in there. Yes, you are. It's not that everybody is included in that list, but everybody's included in verse 12. 
Verse 11 gives us the list. He has given gifts to men so that, verse 12, they can equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So a shepherd teacher, I don't know, let's name one at random, Andy. Someone like Andy is a gift to us as a church. But the one thing that we cannot say is that he does the ministry. No, he does his ministry to equip us for the work of ministry. That's where all of us come in because every one of us has got a part to play. And so, yeah, there are some roles that have kind of a teaching, leading, equipping kind of sense to them. Great, praise the Lord for people like Andy, but actually every one of us has a part to play. And that's the beauty of the church. As we're walking together through life, we're growing up together, not simply because a couple of guys preach every week. We're growing together because of a conversation, because of a text message, because of an encouragement, because somebody sat down and listened to us and prayed with us and gave us some encouragement and maybe a little bit of advice. Maybe they uh, did something for us behind the scenes. Maybe they, they, they cared for us in a practical way. All these little uh, aspects of church life that are so uncelebrated, and if we celebrated them, it would feel awkward, right? Just say, let's celebrate this secret that was done this week. All of that works. Just like the cells in our body are working when we don't even know what cells are. There's stuff happening behind the scenes to make us grow up together. It's beautiful. And so some visible, some obvious, but all of us with a part to play as we are equipped for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so then you get to the end of the section, and having seen this life of God within us, each one of us with a part to play, then at the end he, he really develops this maturity kind of a goal. And look what he says about it in, uh, let's jump down to verse 15. Rather than this spiritually immature kind of spiritual baby, spiritual toddler kind of lifestyle, He says, no, no, rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love, it's not easy, is it? Some people are very good at speaking the truth unlovingly and they do all sorts of damage. Others of us are really good at being very loving and just letting the truth fall by the way in case we ever upset anybody. But Paul says, no, when the body's working properly, there's a speaking the truth in love. There's a living out of the truth and a sharing of the truth and it's wrapped up and it's couched in love. There's a loving encouragement with it. It's hard though, isn't it? I'll be the first to admit I struggle with being on the receiving end. If you don't believe me, ask Melanie. It's really hard to to be uh, criticized or to be told, actually, you didn't do that quite right or you're not very good at handling this kind of thing. And uh, You know, like bristle, I'm quite hedgehoggy at that. It's spiritual immaturity. And, And maybe many of us struggle with it in that way. But as we grow up as a church... What's going to happen is not that we're just going to do better and better at pretending all is well. Actually, that's not growing up. That's just called wasting time. Growing up is where we become better and better at speaking the truth in love, 
of opening our lives up to each other, of, of hearing uh, kind of the realities that we need to hear, hearing the truths of Scripture and the truths about ourselves in the most loving, safe environment possible. If you've got a friend in church that you can be completely honest with, you have a gift from God. Don't take that for granted. And maybe you can find one or two more and gradually, bit by bit, we can connect. More than just, hi, how are you? But instead, here, let me bear my soul. Can't do it in every conversation and you don't want to do it with everybody. I get that. But gradually, as the body is doing its part, as the joints and the ligaments are holding the whole thing together, the mature version of the church is not a church with no issues. It's a church so gripped by the grace of God that we'll admit our issues and share our issues and even carry each other's burdens together. That's why I think that the church is so much better than the world thinks it is. We're not just nice people, we're new people. And we're not just nice people that every now and again manage to be nice to one another. Now the reality is that there's something in this community that is far greater than anything that can be measured by niceness it's about life God's life in us and God's life through us speaking the truth in love to one another growing up together that's the invitation that's the first part next week we're going to go on to the next section where Paul's going to use the word walk again he's going to say okay yeah walking together to grow up together and walking differently but I don't want to get into that we'll see that next time